what do we call police officers? Like, do we, like you are, do I call, do I call you Jeremy? Do we call you officer Jones? Do we call you like deputy Jones, Sergeant <laughs> Jones? Like, what do we call someone like you? For me, I mean, me, I may be different, but just call me Jeremy. I'm just, <laughs> just Jeremy. This, um, yes, sir. <laughs> this is Aider and a Better. My name is Avi Singh. I'm here with Sajid Khan. Sajid, what up? What up, Avi? On this episode of Aider and a Better, we're going to sit with our friend, Sergeant Jeremy Jones. We're going to talk to him about what brought him to the sheriff's office, his story, his thoughts on policing, the criminal justice system, and about the efforts that he's made to help a number of populations including our client population. Jeremy has been with the sheriff's office since around 2009. Santa Clara County. 10 years. Uh, and so we've been working in the same place, doing different things. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Our My introduction to you was in the courthouse. Yes. I think you were a, a courtroom deputy, a bailiff in the courtrooms that we would be public defending in. Our interaction would be with you in terms of getting a client into the courtroom, managing a calendar, things like that. Yeah. And so I knew you as Deputy Jones. Yeah. And because that's, you know, the formality of the courthouse. But then we've had social interactions. We played some flag football together. And so I know you as Jeremy. Yeah. Then you became a sergeant. And so I was just trying to understand both from a professional and personal perspective, like what to call you. So you're a sergeant, Sergeant Jones professionally, but you're Jeremy here yeah. with us. Yes. <laughs> I think we might have been in one of the early courtrooms together when I was a misdemeanor attorney yeah. and you were a new in-court sheriff. Yeah. I have an, a, a different relationship with members of the sheriff's office who happen to be in the courthouse because you're interacting, you're my point of contact for my clients who are incarcerated. Uh, you are there when all the tension is highest in terms of trials. I remember we've had cases <laughs> together early in my career, actually... I'm just, I wasn't even thinking about talking about this, but yeah. now we're, I'm sitting with Sajid and I'm sitting with you, Jeremy. And when I was a brand new attorney, Sajid was a research attorney and I was involved in a misdemeanor case where everything blew up and you were the deputy for that courtroom. And now it's like a reunion of that <laughs> misdemeanor case yeah. for me. And, yeah. and, and it really, deputies in my experience have stood out because of their contact with our clients yeah. uh, and because of how they can rise to the occasion in terms of the treatment of our clients in the courtroom, uh, whether it's allowing them to interact with their family members or uh, just treating them with compassion as they're being moved about. We're so glad that you're here with us because of the way you treated our clients, the compassion you showed for them yeah, actually, uh, when that, you were in the courthouse. That's what it, you're, you saying that makes me remember, I think, Department 24, which is a pretty big courtroom. I think on our either master trial calendars or our after arraignment calendars, you were often down there yeah. uh, handling our in-custody clients. And, and I do remember being able to have real human-to-human -human contact with you where I felt that you recognized the humanity of our clients. And so when I would ask for a client or ask for maybe some spe special consideration to be able to go back into a holding cell to speak with them or maybe move them to the side of the jury box so I had some alone time, uh, you were really mindful of just their humanity and our kind of shared kind of collective goal to make this process efficient and and humane. And so when Avi mentions the, those instances, actually that's the memory that flashes to mind for me, Department 24. Because the sheriffs are the ones in the courtroom as the court security yeah, staff, yes. they're witnessing everything happening with us. And so I would find, not just with you, but with lots of people where I'm talking to the deputies about the case as it's unfolding. You know, they're there. You know, they're doing their job, but they're also watching what's happening and saying after a cross, oh, man. You know, or like yeah. <laughs> that, that was, that was tough for you or that was, that was pretty good for you or whatever it and is, the, you know, they're just witnessing it. And the learning experience that you sit back, right. And you see some, some of the other agencies that are not as fortunate as the sheriff's office to work in there, interact before we go in, you're going through the trials and you're sitting there. And for me personally, especially when you guys were in some of them in, um, department, what was it? 48 back in the day. And you, you go and go through trials you'd be rooting and you start kind of having sides and you start really listening to all the evidence or listening to maybe where an agency could have done something a little bit better or maybe took a shortcut or how the jury basically looks at things. As a police officer, you're going out there and you're, you're doing all these things and your image of just society is kind of skewed because all you hear is the bad stuff. Every single day when 
we come into contact with somebody, it's the worst day of their life. Mm. If I pull somebody over, they may have never had interaction with a cop. And what do they automatically assume? I did something wrong. So they react like that. Their car just got broken into. A family member died. And it could even be a child being molested. Something like that. We are there on their worst day. So yeah. sometimes we're their outlet as well. We're their punching bag. We're all that. So seeing that in the courts from a different perspective and seeing how hard you guys really work for and i've always admired both of you guys i'm not just saying that because i'm sitting in front of you guys but how much you guys are invested in your clients and you do that you see every aspect and you guys probably haven't thought about this but we're outside we're talking to the families while the families are nervous before their their family members brought in they're trying to peak a a wave a high and what of our what our rules tell us there's no communication no contact think about being that person that has to tell a mom hey, you can't make eye contact or you can't mouth I love you to your son. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. And it's just, it's one of those things that's heavy on us, you know? And there's nobody for us to kind of talk to, right? Right. We have to go over there and tell, tell the mom, hey, I know you, I know it's your son, but you, you can't, you can't con- communicate. And now she's, what? I can't even tell my son I love him? Sorry, those are the rules. Now we have to enforce the rules. Now she gets mad at us. Now right. That, now the public defenders are mad at us because the inmates mad and then it just it's the whole cycle that could just go and then that whole cycle really relies on the deputy in the room or the police officer and that's what we just kind of see in police work right now so yeah it's, it's by design that they put you in courts first right mm-hmm. I mean, yes. after you do your field training program then they bring you into they, the courts. they actually with the sheriff's office they put us in courts first before we go to a field training oh, program. okay and they do that by design to kind of get used to your skin so to speak so mm-hmm. you you get in and you're comfortable wearing a badge carrying a gun and then interacting with people how did you get into policing you grew up in san jose um i think you went to piedmont hills high school is that yeah, right that's um, right and you played football at a high level yeah played football back we were just talking about this what 50 almost 15 years ago i graduated high school but i must have did something right we still talk about those high school days like yeah. Bundy, but Grew up on the east side of San Jose mm-hmm. all my life. Went to Piedmont Hills High School. Got an athletic scholarship to the University of Texas, El Paso, where Coach Mike Price came on. And we went from the worst college team in the nation to top 25 in one year. While I was there, I got to interact with so many people from so many walks of life, from Texas to Florida to different parts of California, Arizona. That's where I just learned that this California, there's so much more out there than California. Talking with people, people's views. I had a a college roommate who I couldn't even go to his wedding and I'm not dark. I'm half African-American and half Hispanic. And he was like, sorry, I can't bring you to my wedding. And this was in 2005. So things we didn't think of here in California still going on in different parts of the world. When I came back here, those life experiences, I've just been caring. So you go to Texas, El Paso, you play linebacker there. And then you actually had a shot to play in the in the, uh, in the NFL. Is that right? Like yes. How long how long of a journey was that? It was a short journey because I had broke my leg before, and then I went with the Buffalo Bills, and I was there for the training camp. And once I got cut from the Buffalo Bills, I got picked up for sh- real short stint with the uh, Washington Redskins. Even before I could make it out there, they had already signed somebody else. And at that point in time, I was a big fish here in San Jose. I was one of the best, and then. For somebody to tell you, hey, there's 100,000 Jeremy Joneses, so I didn't really stand out. So I kind of turned my football career in a little early, right? I just I didn't know how to handle the defeat, I would say, I'm not making a team, getting cut, and all that. So then I came back here, and I was looking for a job, and I went to help my brother. He applied for the San Jose PD. They were having their hiring freeze, so I said, I'm going to actually get ready for San Jose PD's obstacle courses and all that. Let me take the sheriff's office test. It's two weeks earlier. And a captain who was a football coach at Live Oak High School remembered me from high school and said, you're a great player. I think you'd be a great police officer. And that was it. That's I didn't awesome. even I, I didn't even want to be a police officer. I, I grew up not liking cops. I was just going to ask you about that. So you're, you mentioned you're biracial, black and brown. As you're dealing with the criminal justice system, our system is generally comprised of black and brown men. So coming from that background, you mentioned, I think you've mentioned to us off outside of this um, podcast that your father was incarcerated at some point. Is that yeah, he's been in, incarcerated. He's been doing good the last couple of years, but incarcerated for the last 20 years wow. uh, of, of my life in prison, in county jails, in and out. So, so coming from those backgrounds, um, 
what were your views of, of police uh, growing up here in San Jose um, before you became a police officer? Like, what were your what were your perceptions of police officers? My perceptions, honestly, was try not to get stopped. Because if you get stopped, you're going to jail. Every time, every time I my father had interactions, and rightfully so, he he went to jail. It was either a warrant, something, but he wasn't the most. Um, he didn't interact well with with law enforcement. So as a young young child, I saw that, and all I saw in my household was when the cops were called, my dad went to jail. My dad wasn't there. We would be left without my father. And then it would be visits in Elmwood, visits in main jail, going through metal detectors. And people were real cold, right? We, there, was no, um, there was no compassion I seen from law enforcement. And that's maybe me just being really small. And, you know, when your, your father goes to jail, then everything kind of unfolds, right? Money, bills don't get paid. Now mom has to do everything. Now you're getting home, collect calls. Maybe the phone's not working or phone gets disconnected. That's the only call he gets or, you know, a lockdown and you're waiting for a call to tell your dad what you did in school. Mm. And then you don't get that call for two or three days because they're in a lockdown. And then um, it's just that whole interaction. And all I saw that as was police officers. Mm. I didn't see the whole court system. So when you're young, you don't understand this whole court system. The judges, you know, the arraignments, all that. All you see is who took my father out or who took your family member, arrested him, and they're responsible for everything else. Right. Wow. Yeah. And you see him at the metal detector when you're going to the jail, and if your visit gets canceled for reasons that aren't in that person's control, you're hearing from them. Yeah, and then and then you're going into court to try to get the visit, and then you're getting kicked out because you're waving high. Like you said. Like you said. And and those are things I went through when I was a, a young child, and I'm not ashamed to, to talk about it. Um, my father's suffered from substance abuse since I was born and he's been in and out of jail and it's been from substance abuse and he still battles substance abuse now but it's just something even he told me that um, no matter how down you are uh, funny story about my father my father played professional football through the whole thing went to the Miami Dolphins um, came back and started having problems with drugs and then just an arrest here domestic violence at the house due to alcoholism and, and narcotic use and then he would get out he'd be clean and then uh, my dad would teach us one thing every Friday when he would get paid he would take us to 7-Eleven right there on McKee and White mm-hmm. and he would give us $20 allowance when he was when he was with us he would give us two tens and we'd have to go talk to a bum somebody that was homeless that mm-hmm. was sitting out front and give him $10 he goes, you can't give them that $10 until you learn something about them. So every Friday, you want your Slurpee, you want to run in there, so you're rushing in. And sometimes people, look, you, you see people, they're sitting there and they're, you're, they're kind of almost invisible. Right. And then imagine a young kid going up there and talking to him and trying to have a conversation with somebody. And then, so that's when I learned, my dad said, doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, everybody in this world has something to offer and it's your job to figure out what that is. Wow. So that's the model I live by that's still awesome. to this day. Even as a police officer, doesn't matter. I see a double red, somebody that's going to jail for the rest of their life. I'm going to treat that the same way as I treat a judge, same way as I treat a janitor, same way as I would treat my wife. That's the, that's the, the model I live by. And, 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 I, and I think that's helped me along my career. Do you remember how old you were when you first started doing that or when your <sighs> father had you do that? Yeah, I was about five years old because he would... He would pick me up from McCollum Elementary, so about five years old, we would do that. And so I got I got two old I got an older brother. There's five of us. My dad really started getting longer sentences when my younger brother was about eight, so I was eleven. So when my younger brother was there, my father was kinda really distant, but we learned that and now I got an older brother that's a police officer and a professional MMA fighter. A uh, younger brother that's in juvenile hall probation in San Mateo. A uh, sister that's in the Navy. And then uh, my youngest sister just graduated college and she's going to pursue to become a doctor. So oh, even even with all that, it's yeah, you just treat people right and good things happen for you. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what your dad taught you at an early early age and then what you experienced with him 
being incarcerated and having to go to the jail and having to go to court and deal with the reality of people that are caught in the criminal justice system, I can imagine it really influencing or impacting how you police, how you walk through our communities, perhaps differently than someone, another police officer that doesn't have those life experiences. Can you can you talk to that? A lot of times, I wouldn't say I get a hard time, but I'll be on the east side and they I get phone calls and everybody's your cousin you know I pulled over this person do you know Jeremy or do you know Sergeant Monroe Every, everybody knows you guys right I can go and talk to a gang member because that's what I was raised around I, I seen seen those things where somebody else they're always taught that gang members are bad gang members are this right and then it's instilled and it has to be instilled even in the academy people are here to hurt you and you see that officers are getting set up assassinated officers are getting hurt just because they're officers, not because of the person they are. So when you're teaching somebody young that's just coming in this, that's the baseline, okay? You see a person, tattoos on the face, tattoos on the neck. Um, you're going to watch hands, waistbands, pockets. He may have a weapon. You're going to pat search him. You're going to try to pat search him. That's what you're going to try to do, right? Well, I don't want to be touched by somebody I don't know. So they're either going to go in, feeling that that person already has to drop on them. But for me, I just honestly, I just... I can go up and I can, I'm like a chameleon. I can go in and talk with mm -hmm. anybody. And that's just from the experiences. And I think that's not just from my childhood, but going off to college, going to Texas and meeting a, a lot of different people. And I think that that may hinder some um, officers, younger officers, but through the years, you're going to come across so many people. And it's just like we said, it's your choice how you really let that form who you become. Because this job, and it, it, it's a sad things, but this job could kill you. This job leads to divorce, leads to stress, leads to an isolated world because you're going everywhere and you're just looking at every single person. I tend to do that now. Every single person, and my wife gets mad at me, right? She always teases me. You're always looking at somebody. And I'm always just kind of, I wouldn't say sizing them up, but I'm sitting in, a, in the mall and I'm like, hey, if there's a shooting, which way are we going to go? In movie theater, there's a shooting. Who's going to be the shooter? You're kind of looking at people, and then before you know it, it looks like you're staring people, and then right. you get you're paranoid, hyper, kind of hypersensitive, vigilant. Hyper, yeah, yeah. And that's just one of that's just one of those things you you're taught in the academy and mm -hmm. all the way. Most most cops are are taught that, but but because of your experience, would you say that you're able to kind of kind of shift that perspective a little bit and not necessarily jump to the conclusions or certain stereotypes because of what you've gone through growing up here in San Jose, growing up in the family that you've grown up in, playing football in Texas, which is yeah. essentially the Midwest or the South. I'd imagine that helps you see the humanity of the people you're dealing with, maybe more so than uh, an officer that hasn't had the experiences that you have. Yeah, I, I do believe so. I think it, it's all the way to the extreme. A lot of times I go out and I talk to people that are in custody. My thing is when and this is just not my thing, but my cousins, some of my best friends that I went to the academy with, every time we arrest somebody, we try to get them to say thank you. You might think like, why? Well, in order for them to say thank you on your ride to the jail, that's their chance. That's their most vulnerable time. And we've heard some stories where they let their family down. They let, and then you're just, a, you're just an ear to them. You're an, either an encouragement or you're the gasoline to the flame, right? That, at that point in time, that's where you, you learn a lot. So some, some people are always just going to hate cops regardless of what they've done. It's your fault, your fault. But if you get a person to say thank you for taking me, I'm going to try to turn my life around. Or That's one of the greatest compliments. And I can imagine, too, you, I, that's an interesting thing to talk about, like the idea of, of having an arrestee say thank you. It could be, I, I'd imagine, from your perspective, just treating them with, even though you're, they're being arrested for a crime, that you're still honoring their humanity and seeing them as a human being and not throwing them around like a rag doll or treating them like an animal, but instead, you know, actually dignifying them even, even through a process that is um, inherently kind of stripping them of certain dignities. Is that, is yeah. that fair? Yeah. In that process, I'd imagine that they might say thank you if they felt like they were just being treated like a human being, like if they were put in, put into the, into the car in a gracious way, brought out of the car in a gracious way. Letting them call um, their call their mom or call their wife to let them know, hey, I'm going into jail. Or, right. Uh, you know, giving them that phone call or, yeah. hey, giving them that last cigarette they could smoke before they're going to go go in. Right. Hey, giving them a glass of water. <laughs> I keep, It's funny. I keep, I keep bottles of water in my car and you go down and, you know, you want a water? You want, you make them comfortable. You make them as comfortable as possible, right? We're providing a service. 
and at the end of the day, we're public servants as well. We're providing them a service. They're under our custody. They're under our watch. They're in your care. They're in your well. In I mean, care. it's amazing that you say that because we unfortunately had another death at Elmwood. I don't. I don't know the circumstances of it um, or the or who the person was, but I know it was. It was broadcasted out that there was a death at Elmwood. Might have been a suicide. And one of the things that I started to think about was this word custody. And I, I literally Googled the definition of it. It's taking taking on someone to care for them and to protect them. And oftentimes I we feel, or I'll, I'll just say for myself, I feel like our system loses sight of that care, concern, protection of those that are being arrested and then brought into our jails. It's refreshing to hear you say that when you take custody of someone that you are essentially taking um, responsibility for their protection, for their care, for their well-being. Because oftentimes when you walk into our jails uh, or you walk into our courthouses, people are shackled, people are being called bodies, people are being dehumanized in subtle and not so subtle ways. I, I don't feel like from a systemic point of view or as, you know, from our community that we're really honoring what we're supposed to be doing when we do take someone into custody. Yeah, you've said that before, Sajid, in our conversations about the juvenile system. And how the minor, the youth, is a ward of the court. Right. And the ward of the court is being handled under the welfare and institutions code, you Mm -hmm. know, for the kids' welfare. But so much of the stuff is backwards sometimes and not about uh, the kids' welfare. And it's kind of extending that to the adult context of this. Yeah, you know, when we talk about wards of the court, essentially the state is stepping in to the shoes of this child's parents you know becoming the parent of this child so as a parent what would we do for our children what we we want for our children and what we what we what would we want to avoid being inflicted upon them or thrust upon them how would we want them to be housed and fed and clothed i mean it's it's powerful that you've had that experience in your family jeremy like i would imagine because your father went through it you saw him as a human being despite what he uh, went through, you're able to extend that humanity to the people that you're bringing into the into the jails or into your car or that are coming into the courthouse. Yeah, and um, a story about that. I don't know. Uh, I have you guys on Facebook, and you've probably seen pictures of my older brother. We're all different shades. I'm the I'm the lightest in my family. Your older brother's the MMA fighter? Yeah. Yeah. Victor Jones? Yeah, Victor. Yeah. So he's dark. He's Does he have a nickname in the ring? Uh, bagger man, <laughs> bagger, oh, man. Nice. bagger man. So he's bagging them up. But I like that. Um, me of the we were at um, we rode our bikes. My father, uh, my older brother, and me. We rode our bikes to the liquor store. When we were younger, and we were waiting in line, and um, our bikes were outside. And a guy had made a off-colored comment about my father, um, about me actually. It was like he's not related to you or what is this guy doing with him? Right. Mm-hmm. So my father being my father buys what he was going to buy, takes his kids outside and goes back in and confronts the guy about what he said. Basically grabs the guy's soda out of his hand for basically insulting me. The guy walks out, goes in the car, calls San Jose PD. We stay there like nothing. Um, San Jose PD rushes up and there's like 15, 20 units right there on, um, on Kirk and McKee had us all out at gunpoint, prone us all out, put us in handcuffs. And I must've been about nine years old. And my dad said, no, yeah, I, I did it. The guy said this, 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 and this, right? So he was on probation at the time. So they took him in and I just remember just bawling saying my dad didn't do anything he paid he didn't do anything my dad was trying to get straight he wasn't on drugs at this time he was being a good father he was there san jose had us in handcuffs they had us in the back of this car it was summer it was hot and then this officer i'm I'm gonna say his name i'm sure he would he would appreciate it tim jackson from san jose pd get those kids out out of the car get those kids out and he escorted us with his lights on me and my brother all the way home Made sure we had water, went in the liquor store, bought or something. And I just remember, I was so sad. I was crying. I was crying. And then I looked at him. I was like, God, that guy, I want to be like that guy. That guy's like my hero, right? Fast forward, he is our um, SRO, which we call, we call him school resource officer. But he's at our school when I'm in high school. Watch him play through the thing. And I always remember, I go, that guy, Tim, he's a good guy, Tim Jackson. Did he remember you from the liquor store? Yeah. 
I don't know. I've never I never talked to him about the liquor store incident, but I always talked to him in high school, and I'm sure he remembered me. He actually remembered my father. My father was a really good high school football player, but he's going to retire coming up soon. But he is kind of the reason I got into law enforcement. When I did get into law enforcement, when it hits me and they're like, hey, you got a job as a cop. And I was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know I want to be something like that. Yeah. How powerful this job is. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful vessel for a lot of good and also a lot of bad like we talked about. Right. Yeah, I'd imagine that if that scenario had been different, I mean, it sounded very traumatic and it could have been a thoroughly traumatic incident if you had remained in that car, cuffed in this but, hot, sweltering heat, and if the officers essentially were oblivious to your, to who you were as a child and as into your humanity. But it, because this one officer saw you and saw that you were a human being and reacted the way it did, it took a traumatic incident and turned it into something that was really impactful for you um, in a positive way and then this is the two-sided token because you think about it I'm, <laughs> and i've been on calls like this what is the call come over the air a robbery in progress robbery is a serious crime harms people a lot of robberies turn into foot pursuits or you know physical confrontations so what san jose did was they did the right thing by protocol and all that stuff you know, you have your guns out, you're, you're giving commands, you're handcuffing everybody till the scene is safe. You go in there, you talk with all the parties. The system for what we want right now, there's two sides to every story on this. So now me looking back on it, because for the longest time I go, how can they point a gun at a kid, right? I didn't do anything wrong. And then me thinking my dad didn't do anything wrong. But now if they didn't, and my dad was really robbing the store, which he wasn't, it was an altercation, but that officer could have got injured. That officer's wife could have been a widow. So that's where the conflict of the humanity and people on both sides of it. We hear stories on Facebook. We see all these things. So it, it's just, it's one of these tokens where I think the only thing is you treat everybody with dignity and respect. Both sides of it, we can come to some kind of mutual ground because we're separated right now. So how has your family reacted to you being a, how did they react initially? And then how have you changed perhaps perhaps change their perspectives of your of police so what my dad's side of the family i would say it all all everybody that's black in my family it's even my grandmother to this day the only cop she loves is myself and sergeant monroe that's the only cop she and likes. My, sergeant monroe by the way is your is your cousin is my right? cousin yeah sergeant tj monroe he's a canine sergeant with santa clara county sheriff's office but and you're, and you're both canine sergeants yeah we're both canine sergeants her perspective we'll go to holidays or we'll be at things and we'll be arguing and it's about did you see what this cop did in Baltimore? Did you see what happened over here in L.A.? Did you see this? And I'm tired of people opening up the newspapers and seeing, hey, this officer did this bad. This officer did this, right? So what I try to do is when my grandmother, who lives in Bakersfield, when she reads something about Santa Clara County, I want it to be positive, not only for myself, but other deputies. That's where a lot of these foundations and runs and toy drives and being on the board and being, you know, helping with getting people rehab and substance abuse. That's where a lot of these have driven me to something negative. We can turn, everybody's going to have something negative going on in their life, right? The chips are going to fall where they may, but it's how you rebound and it's how you help people. Could you just, just briefly tell uh, folks who are listening what the Heroes Run is and how you involve uh, folks at Elmwood and then how the, uh, who the beneficiaries of the Santa Paws toy drive are. So the Heroes Run started when we went to a call, and a young girl, she was about 21 years old, she was suffering from a mental psychosis. Like She was, she had um, schizophrenia, and she had a seven-month-old baby. The grandmother couldn't control it, said she needs help. We go in the back room, and she literally has a baby in her hand with a bathroom door fortified. And we look in there, and she has a pair of scissors and she says she's going to get the evil out. And she's wrote on the walls, Satan's coming with her lipstick. It was my first year out on patrol. We basically barge in there, grab her, grab the baby. I'm one of the younger deputies, so I get stuck with this child. I don't have a child of my own at the time. Imagine the pandemonium, the screaming, the yelling. This house is like a hoarder house. There's stuff everywhere. This baby hasn't been changed in months. So I'm holding this child. And young, and then I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this. I want to go out and find bad guys. I want to criminals. During all that screaming and yelling, this baby was not crying as soon as it was in my arms. It was crying before. As soon as it got in my arms, it stopped crying. EMS comes. They check out the child. As soon as I hand over the baby, the baby starts screaming crying. They're like, Jones, 
you got to go to the hospital. We'll wait for CPS. She's going to EPS. We're going to get her some psychiatric help. Grandmother's too old. Can't, is not going to be able to care for this child. I go to Valley Medical Center, sitting on a long shift, working overnight, holding this child. Child's fine, just in my arms. And I don't have a child at the time. So I'm like, man, this is pretty cool. They gave the baby a bath, wiped them up. I'm holding them. CPS doesn't show up because they thought we were at a different hospital. So I'm sitting here bonding with this child. And every time they come in and check on the child, I'm like, is baby going to be okay? So my shift ends, wake up the next day. I'm like, God, what? I wonder what happened with that kid. Because a lot of times we don't get closure on cases. Once they're done, we go OD. And OD means off duty. We're done. I came back. They were like, yeah, the pediatric center here is one of the best in California. And we service everybody. It doesn't matter if they have money or not. It's a county hospital. So I went back up there in uniform and walked in. And it was crazy because they kind of just let me in. I was in uniform. Started looking in, looking for the child. And I started seeing kids in rooms, white walls. There was nothing. Just the TVs weren't working. And their parents were working. I'm like, hey, what's wrong with this child? And they would tell me. Maybe a broken arm, right? Has to have surgery. Or this one has cancer. And then there were some parents in there. But every time I walked in in uniform, the kids' faces just lit up. And all I had was a sticker. So I come back, talk with my cousin, and thinking of these crazy suggestions, I go, we need to do something. We need to start buying stuff, put it on the walls, buying Nintendos. How can we do that? Let's make a 5K. Call it the Heroes Run. Because these kids are the ones that are heroes, right? They're in there smiling and everything like that. Let's raise money for these kids. I talk with my sheriff, and the sheriff, she was on. She goes, you brought it to me? Cheers. Make it happen. Oh, support you 100%. Talk with the VMC Foundation, and they go, Sounds like we're onto something. Six years we've been working together. We've raised over $100,000. We raised a lot of money for the kids. We've got TVs in there, portable stuff. We have, you know, walls are being painted. We have a bunch of stuff. We raised a lot of money. But that was from something negative to something positive. A whole community comes out. We have about 2,000 people that come out and support that event. Wow. And I'm and I'm and I feel bad because I'm sitting here. I kind of feel like I'm standing on a, a pedestal, right, and talking on a soapbox, but. This, every officer and every person has this opportunity to do these things. And that's what we're kind of leading by example. Me and my cousin were just talking about this, uh, Sergeant Monroe. We want every agency to start something like this to where we can go and be proud of. And I know they do. They have a lot of great things. And we've just been lucky that these things have taken off like this. Seven years is, is a big accomplishment for us. Can you talk actually about the Heroes Run and how you've utilized um, folks at Elmwood to be participating in that? Oh, yeah. I, I think we might have missed that part of it. So we have a whole obstacle course that we built, kind of like Tough Mudder. And we have one for the adults and one for the, the kids. And the the whole emphasis of our run is it's for the kids. So everything the adults get to do, the kids get to do. So we built this whole obstacle course out of wood. Well, we went and got to donate it. And the people that are in jail that are in industries that are trying to uh, get a job skill when they get out and they're working in industries and it's a great great program there they build they design and build all these things there's some amazing carpenters and things that I couldn't even do and I go in there and that's the blue line black lives matter right so you go in there and you ask these a lot of times when they're in jail they're told to do they're told when they can shower told when they can eat they're told they are told when they can use the phone. Well, I take a different approach. I go in there and I go, will you guys help me? And this is what we're going to help. It's not for me. It's for the kids. As soon as you say kids, I learned it early in my profession, everybody loves kids and everybody loves dogs. And I got both of them <laughs> with the canine. So I'm utilizing it. So I'll go in there and I'll talk and I'll work hand-to-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder with them. I'm picking up stuff and we're going and... There's sometimes people will be like, oh, I can't believe you're in there and, and doing this. Well, our foundation, the Heroes Run Foundation, to say thank you to them for building all this stuff. We just don't get in, use free labor, right? We don't do that. Um, they build it. Um, when they get released, any children that they send, I basically tell them, I give them my card, my name. Um, I tell them, anybody you refer will get free admission and they can come out there. Um, we threw barbecues. I went out there and cooked. My wife is so supportive behind all this. She has been there marinating meat. Um, we cooked and got, we fed them for, as a thank you. And then, um, we actually had one of the main carpenters last year come out to the heroes run. He got released 
and with Supervisor Jaeger, he was talking with them and talked about the new, um, basically, fitness that they put out here outside Old 70 West. He was talking with them about that. Supervisor Jaeger came, and they're talking, and it basically gave them a sense of pride. And then that's why I push it in the media, right, social media and all this. And then those guys are sitting in Elmwood on the weekend. They know the weekend's coming, and we get some media coverage on it, and they see, and they're like, hey, guys, I did that. Yeah. I yeah. did that. I don't know how many times I could tell you, and they go, hey, you're the run guy. Like when they're walking in the tunnels, they're going to court. Hey, that's cool what you did for the kids. It's like I tell them, and I'll see the guys. Hey, yeah, I worked on it. Like, yeah, I remember you. It's so cool what you did for the kids. Just like my, my father said, everybody has something to offer, and it takes that to figure out what it is. And with a lot of those guys in there, I don't know what their charges is. I don't like to talk about it with them. I just see them like they see me as a human and we're here to help each other yeah just about the santa paws toy event you're coming (laughs) it's uh for uh the children whose parents are in the uh, in the jails or and i know i'm talking a lot can i explain that a little bit will you tell us about how that came about four years ago a child got her bike stolen out of the carport on madeline drive um the parents put the the bike in there because they were trying to hide the christmas presents and this guy stole it and was riding around on a pink bicycle. We made it our mission to catch this guy. It was Christmas Eve when we went back, and the kids were like, oh, the guy was back here. He stole it, he's riding around. We set up a perimeter, we searched with our dogs. The guy was gone, we couldn't catch him, we couldn't find him. So, Sergeant Monroe myself on Christmas, working Christmas, we were like, hey, we're gonna catch this guy, this guy's gonna be back around. So we're hanging out there, and then we see the little girl. So we bought her a Christmas gift. So we felt bad. The parents um, were living there and they were just surviving, right? And talking with the dad, he's just surviving. He was working, had enough money to provide for his family. He bought his child a bike. He didn't have anything extra. So TJ and myself put a little bit of money together and we got the girl a, some little presents from CVS. From It was Walgreens at the time down the street. We go knock on the door give this girl presents and we think it's like the coolest thing right we give her three presents and it's like a nerf basketball anything we can buy from there it was just a little stuff and she goes oh thank you so much but can i give this to my neighbors because they don't have any gifts hmm. so in this little apartment kind of there's townhouses and stuff she walks over without even saying anything as soon as we hand her the stuff oh thank you but knocks on the door three other kids come out they don't grab the gifts they're like oh this is so cool and they're sharing And that was the first thing I thought of. All these kids just share whatever they have. They make this little community work in our jurisdiction. Tell TJ, go as fast as you can, CVS. I'm going to go as fast as I can to Jack in the Box. TJ bought everything, all the toys we can on Christmas Day. I bought $50 worth of tacos, 100 tacos. (laughs) That's a lot of tacos at Jack in the Box. Yeah, right (laughs) down the street. buying out the whole place. And it took a while, right? tacos. Yeah. And we drove back. You get the curly fries with the tacos? No, you know, <laughs> I was on a cop's salary. All I, <laughs> I did what I could, right? Um, you give him a good meal. That's, I think those are good pay, tacos. You have to pay more to not get the curly fries. <laughs> <laughs> so we drive back, and these kids are cheering. I'm talking about we have about 15 kids cheering, and we don't even have enough gifts for all of them. But we sat there with our canines, and we enjoyed Christmas dinner out on the lawn, playing with all these gifts. And we, the next year we go, and we got to do something good. The next year it grew, but this all came out of Sergeant Monroe's Rose and I's pocket. We reached out to a, a really, really close friends as a business owner. And I'm gonna shout him out, uh, Kicks Business. And he says, I'm gonna help. We all paid for pizzas the second year, bought a hundred Little Caesars pizzas, chickens from Costco. And we set up and we had a block party. Brought a DJ out, a little boom box. And that night we had about a hundred kids. Last year we had about 300 kids. We got taco truck. We feed everybody on Madeline. We gave out two gifts to everybody. We had a kid that had cancer that came down all the way from Tracy. We got him a 50-inch TV while he was going through chemotherapy. We just, just the impacts we have on these kids. We can do that. But what? For asking for help, asking everybody else if they want to be involved. So now this year, we're looking at, we're taking it one step further. Because that's how I used to get the gifts. Me and my family, we used to go to Elmwood and visit my dad when he was in jail. And they would give us gifts. They would give us a voucher. We would go to a church and we would get our Christmas gifts. So this year, we planned ahead and we got a lot of gifts donated. So from Saturday, the 22nd, through Christmas, every child that walks in and visits their 
family at Main Jail or Elmwood is going to receive a Christmas gift. And what we're working on right now is, depending on their classifications, because there's all policies and procedures, but if they're part of a contact visit, which a lot of times my dad was at Elmwood, where I get to hug him and, and talk with him and hold his hand, that in custody, and I don't like calling him that, but that person that's in jail, he's going to actually be able to get up with his son or his daughter, look at that pile of toys and go, my daughter wants that one right there. Grab it and hand it to his child. And why? Just because their child is there, they don't pick their parents. We don't even know what the possible outcome is going to be from this. But at that moment in time, that person that's in jail is going to feel some sense of pride. He's going to be able to give his family something. That's probably the worst. And I'm tearing up right now because um, my father, that was probably one of the hardest times. You see all these other kids, Christmas breaks. Yeah. Well, we didn't get that. I didn't get that a lot of the years. But um, when I did go see my dad in there, we gave him a hug and we walked out. And that was Christmas, right? We got this voucher and we looked at this voucher all the way until we, we got it. But there was kind of a disconnect. And this way, they can actually grab something and give it and feel that. Pick it out. You know what? My son would like that. You know what? That scooter is perfect for my daughter. That person that's in custody, whoever it may be. You gave that. You know why? Because the community is given to everybody. These efforts are really powerful in terms of bridging traditionally perhaps kind of polarized communities. You know, the police and the incarcerated, police and the criminally accused. I kind of wanted to dovetail from there and kind of bring it back to the three of us and the fact that we're having this conversation. I don't. I, I, I can't imagine there have been many recorded conversations between public defenders and a you know police officers in this type of setting i mean i i traditionally uh, public defenders we are in the trenches we are team oriented and oftentimes you probably know it yeah. our, our team is against your team yeah i mean we're cross-examining you uh, police officers in court like avi mentioned at the top we are critical because our job demands it of us of um, police officers' performance in the field, you know, choices that they made to make a car stop or to make to decide to search somebody, things that they did or didn't do in the course of an investigation, things they did or didn't include in their police reports, their testimony in court, whether they're lying or being evasive, all these things that we are tasked to do as, as public defenders. And so oftentimes we are in pretty adversarial positions for the most part. So... I think it's really amazing that you're willing to come on and talk with us, one. And so I wanted to just kind of pick your brain about that. You know, why are you willing to be here with us? Not about us personally, because I know we're we're all kind of collegial and we're friends, but yeah. from a, being able to kind of cross that invisible barrier uh, from, you know, that, that kind of separates us traditionally in our, in our courthouses. Yeah, why are you willing to do that? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, and I think that's, our society today right you got to pick and choose a team you got to pick and choose a side you have a job to do i have a job to do just because you're defending somebody or you're holding police officers accountable doesn't mean that we're does that doesn't make you any less of a husband a father a person a friend as you can see i might get some like weird looks like oh why why are you talking with those like when i was brand new i you asked me to come play on your flag football team right 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 and yeah. i went and i was like oh football yeah let's play yeah, yeah. right bringing in a ringer oh he right. was a beast <laughs> he was a beast it was like a man amongst boys <laughs> no, but, but when we played right yeah. and then i was like come back and i'm young and i'm telling the guys i was like oh yeah it was a one night it was like a tuesday night league or something sunday night sunday, sunday night yeah so on monday i'm like yeah i'm telling the guys sitting in briefing I'm like yeah i'm playing on the public defenders team it's cool you're playing on the what? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've always just, I marched by my own own beat, right? I, I can't, if I think I'm doing the right thing, I want people to follow me. I want to be a leader, right? But if I just want to blend in the crowd, I'm going to fall in that. Hey, I can't talk to you. If I would have kind of went with those naysayers, like, hey, then maybe I would have started treating people wrong or maybe I would have never had this reaction where we're talking and I'm seeing your, your kids growing up or you're actually going to come out to this event or maybe in a year we might be able to put something together where we all help everybody. Just me sitting here, right? And you guys might think I'm one of a kind. I'm not. There's so many people that I work with from this agency, other agencies that do the same thing. And I think it's just shadowed because of that, this team versus that team. I just think some people go, hey, I'm not going to go out and step out on a limb, right? We always respected, I've always respected your stance, you know, especially in the courtroom. And there'll be times where in, in trials, I'm like cheering for you, like, oh, yeah, 
<laughs> get it, get it. Or it's you know, I hope he wins. I hope you know. And there's a lot of times like that. And then there's other times where I'll see something. I'll be like, oh nope, he lost. That's you know the name of the game. But as long as we're all doing the right thing, then there shouldn't be no animosity. So if I'm doing the right thing, you know, I'm treating people right. If I have to arrest somebody and it's within all statutes and laws and the right way, then guess what? You might have to cross-examine me, but it's not its not going to be anything personal. I think it gets personal when things are taken personal, right? Right. So it's just a job, and it's a job that you could either go one way or the other, right? You could be entrenched in this job, and this job is all you think about, hey, I'm a cop, I wear a badge, and that's going to be my persona, and it's going to be my persona outside of work. Or you can wear this badge and go, okay, as soon as you take it off, hey, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a, I'm a family man, and I can let my hair down. We can go play Sunday night football, or we can go catch a movie. We can go catch, you know, drink a right. beer, right. those things. And I, and I think um, you just hang with different people and give people opportunities, and I think you just, you'll grow from that. Jeremy, I wanted to ask you to share with us, so a lot of our listeners are law students, uh, public defenders, criminal defense people, and you have experience being cross-examined and uh, watching cross-examinations, whether it's part of a case that you're working on or when you're working in the courts as a sergeant supervising or just as your kind of first or second time around. If you had any like things that stood out to you, it, you know, like as a, this is the worst thing the attorneys do from my perspective, the public defenders. And, and you know, we're, there's no, you know, no hard feelings on this. <laughs> it can even be stuff that Sajid does. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but like, is there something that happens where you see the uh, defense folks do things and you think, well, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, I don't think it's effective or they're misunderstanding something, you know, about the work that you, you, you'd want to tell us about it, You don't have to have, anything. no, it's, it's kind of creating doubt and it's taking it personal when officers take it personal. And then sometimes when attorneys take it personal and they start questioning, that's the worst thing from an officer's point of view, right? You asked me a question, I should just answer that question. Don't sit up there on the stand and try to outsmart somebody. It happened. You wrote a report and that's what happened. Refer to your report, read your report and answer. But I'm sure you guys both have it to where the officer is trying to talk smart back or be evasive like you said, right? When right. they don't have to be. And then it then it opens it up. It's like a debate now when you when officers get into that but i've also seen times where that works in your guys's favor because officers get flustered and I'm, I'm telling the young guys now right when you read somebody the miranda rights read them the same every time from a card and then write in your report the same way because if you ask me i've i've read oh, hundred hundreds of people the miranda rights right but if you ask me right now to recite the Miranda rights, how it's written perfectly and say every single word in that, I don't think anybody in here can say it the way that it, it's written. Now, if I go up on the stand, I know the Miranda rights, but you asked me to explain it without looking at my report, and I have a jury there, I have a judge, I have a microphone that I'm not used to talking in front of, I might stumble a little bit. And then you go, oh, you're stumbling in court, so how, how, how did you not stumble out there? And then now I'm mad because I know I know my stuff. Now you're trying to make Kind of demean me a little bit. So, you know what? I'm going to demean you. Yeah, I know my stuff. Well, you know what, Sergeant Jones? Well, why don't you why don't you recite the Miranda rights right now? And then you're in your nice uniform, so you probably don't have your Miranda card. And you didn't write in your report because you're super tired. And I see you smiling because, <laughs> because that's I'm something. I'm just saying, <laughs> next time I get you on a witness stand, I'm going to ask you. I've never asked an officer to do that. Maybe I should do that next time. <laughs> See now, now everybody's gonna yeah, be yelling at me. Yeah, but now, but now, from. what the officers could do is like, yeah, I bring bring my Miranda card. This is how right. I read it. But just simple little things like that, and just be truthful. I mean, the the whole premise is an officer standard. And I talked to the guys in the academy about this. What's this officer's standard, right? Well, officer standard is it's not written anywhere. Nobody tells you, but go above and beyond and be truthful. Be the best you you can be. And if you made a mistake, I made a mistake. Don't take it personal. There's no scoreboard that you're getting every time you make a felony arrest. There's no scoreboard. The scoreboard is if somebody's harming somebody and and we keep somebody safe. If we go out in the community and you talk to people, you keep somebody safe. You do your job and you go home at the end of the night to your family. And then you work with people. That's, that's what the scoreboard's telling. We're not telling how many times you can lock somebody up and, and put them away. That's not the tally. And I think policing in general is going away from that because that may have been what it 
you know, book them, Dano. Um, that's what it was back then. But now it's we have alternatives, right? We have sobering stations. We have side outs. We have we can't get stuck in this old mentality. We have to evolve. We have to change. That's just like anything in the whole entire world. And that's police work t- now, too. So I think a lot of them are getting in front of the curve and we're, we're doing that. We're trying to find alternative motives for everybody. So I probably went off on a tangent there. But just thinking about it, that's I think that's the thing. Once you get once you take it personal and you should take every case personal, right, because you're going to do your best work. Like I tell my young guys, pretend that domestic violence victim is your grandmother. How would you want them to treat your family member? That's how you should take every case do it thoroughly treat everybody with dignity and respect and you're going to be okay in this world do good be good well i think that's a, a great place to leave it and uh jeremy thank you so much for yeah, coming on eight or a better pleasure thank you and and if i could just say one thing i'm so proud of both of you guys but i'm proud of everybody that walks through the courthouses I, and there's no team and a lot of it seeing everybody treats each other right and we're working the system and hopefully the system starts working for everybody for me personally i just i haven't spoke to my my father in a long long time but i just want to say thank you to him for all the things he's allowed me to do so through his influence and all that i'm allowed to sit here and and talk and guess what maybe somebody else might see this and maybe somebody else might start santa paws or maybe somebody else might be fortunate and have a cousin on the on the force that wants to start something you guys you're going to come out and help out and actually see the impact that we have in the community and just because you guys are in suits and most times sit behind a desk in a courtroom, you guys could have just as much impact. Because I'm telling you, when I talk with these kids and I ask them what they want to be when they grow up, when they're sitting in the hospital bed, sometimes on their deathbed, I get anywhere from, I want to be like my dad, a janitor. I want to be like my uncle, a police officer. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a judge. Those are all things that we are here right now sitting there. So um, we all have a chance to influence somebody. So thank you for allowing me to voice my opinion and influence as many people as I can through you guys. I appreciate it. That's awesome. We'll uh, we'll talk to you all next time. Thank you for listening to Ada and Abetta.